0: Good to see you all here today and at home. Um, Please feel free to keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 9. Well, I'd like to start by getting real. Let's get real. Let's face it, uh, those experiences that we often expect to be life-changing often aren't. Right, Like that next great getaway, or if you want to church it up, that that next great spiritual retreat, or about achieving that next degree, or getting that next job, or losing those extra pounds, finishing that marathon. We just bought a new house. I thought that would change a lot more than it did. Fill in the blank, right? The list goes on and on. Now I'm not saying those things don't matter at all, right? It's just that those mountaintop moments that we so often chase, you know, they don't seem to quite deliver the redemption or transformation that we're so often hoping for from them. Case in point last week we heard about the ultimate mountaintop experience right carrie took us through uh the first part of mark chapter 9 where jesus took some of his disciples on what should have been the life-changing experience to end all life-changing experiences to quickly recap um jesus right the christ the son of god he took peter james and john up this glorious mountain where they got to bask in Glowing, transcendent, spiritual reality. They basically got to experience heaven touching down on earth. Right? How do you beat that? How do you beat meeting Moses and Elijah, two of the most important figures in their history, and I'd argue also of all time? And then with their very own ears, they got to hear the voice of God himself thunder out from the cloud. And most importantly, they got to witness Jesus transfigured. His blinding, divine glory emanated before their very eyes. Face-melting stuff here. And yet, here's the disappointing shocker, right? If you keep reading on in Mark about how the disciples act after this glorious episode on the mountaintop, you realize the disciples aren't any better off. (laughs) In fact, they're kind of worse off, right? Much worse. Here are some of the highlights, or actually the lowlights of what the disciples do after this glorious mountaintop experience. They selfishly and stupidly argue and fight amongst themselves as they compete with one another and jockey for position. Not only do they treat each other poorly, right? You also see them being defensive and hostile toward who they perceive as outsiders. And if that weren't enough, they also try but fail to manipulate Jesus into carrying out their thinly-veiled self-serving agendas, seeking their own position and power. And to cap it all off, we're told that the disciples were really mean to the children. I mean, brings us to this question, right? What hope is there for these guys? And if we're anything like them, what hope is there for us? If the disciples can't find life-changing faith on the glorious mountaintop, of transfiguration where can it be found if at all well thankfully today we actually come to a passage that is quite hopeful because it's going to try to show us the answer the way right it's a passage that's full of counterintuitive surprises about the nature of real faith and how much it reflects Jesus' central teaching about the cross. I'm just going to give you the big spoiler right now, which is genuine faith. It's not necessarily found on the glorious mountaintops, but rather genuine faith is often found in the depths of the valley. And the one that we're going to look at today is a dark and messy one, Quite like the actual world that we live in which is why I've titled this message uh, real faith in the real world so as uh, Jesus makes his way down from the mountain to the valley what is it that awaits him Uh, my answer for it uh, my description is it's a dumpster fire uh, that's on the cusp of burning out of control let's have a look at it again from verse 14 verse 14 and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. So, Jesus comes down from the mountain. And he discovers that some of his disciples have gotten into this heated argument with the scribes. Uh, namely, the religious uh, elite scholars of their day. And apparently this argument had broken out uh, over the disciples' failure to help this man with this demon-possessed boy. And if that weren't embarrassing enough itself, right? Adding fuel to this fire is this huge crowd that has gathered to witness this, this showdown, this spectacle. And I'm sure they're only gonna help the situation. You know, they won't escalate the conflict or anything like that. Now, There are some modern day scribes, elite scholars, that would argue that this boy was not demon-possessed, right? It's just ancient naivete. It was obviously just a, a serious case of epilepsy. But actually, the ancients weren't as naive as we'd often like to think of them as, right? They had different categories for disease and demonization but maybe they also had some insight into how those sometimes intermixed, right? So, Mark notes repeatedly here that this was a demonic force at work. Now, this whole scene feels like it's about to go off the rails, right? And it's actually quite reminiscent of another incident where God's people got a little rowdy, a little restless, while their leader, Moses, was away up on the mountaintop, Mount Sinai. Receiving the law And if you remember that account uh, while Moses was away How did Israel do? They grew in unbelief, right? Which resulted in them trying to take the reins for themselves Which was ultimately from God himself Leading to one of the worst episodes of judgment ever recorded in Scripture So In the valley, beneath the surface of of all this noise and clamor, here's what I think Jesus actually finds more than anything. And I think I'm right because he actually just says so, right? What Jesus encounters is faithlessness, unbelief. Look with me again at verse 19. This is his anguished response to the whole situation. Verse 19. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now here's the first point or takeaway. In the real world, everyone in it is full of unbelief. The real world and everyone in it is full of unbelief. According to Jesus, what he encounters in this valley from the disciples to the scribes to the crowds, and as we'll see, even this boy's father, they all individually and corporately are referred to as being part of a faithless generation or an unbelieving generation. Now, um, the statement by Jesus might offend a lot of our modern sensibilities, but really it shouldn't. uh, Because the Bible stays on message about this very fact from beginning to end. Uh, In fact, you have to work really hard to miss it. You have to be very unbelieving to miss this. Um, Starting from Genesis on, we're told explicitly and implicitly that unbelief pervades every inch of our world. Right, Because it's carried in every human heart since the moment um, sin and death entered into the world. After all, how did sin and death enter into the world? Through unbelief, right? Faithlessness, a lack of trust in God's goodness and power that led to us rebelling against him and trying to take the reigns for ourselves. So to answer Jesus' own question, you know how long Jesus, who is King God in the flesh as Mark has been presenting him so far? How long has he been enduring and bearing with all the faithless generations of mankind how about from the very beginning, right? From every generation down to you and me. Because as soon as we show up here in time and space, we show up with the same old, hard, unbelieving hearts. This valley story itself kind of points to the cosmic scale of this. Because did you happen to notice how Crowded the stages in this story. (laughs) All the major players in Mark's gospel actually come to make an appearance here. Um, You have Jesus and the disciples. You also have the religious leaders and then the crowd. You also have a few representatives from the crowd. And then you also have a demon. The scene is functioning. Something like a microcosm of the whole world. It's a dark snapshot of its brokenness and darkness. And what's most mind-boggling to me about it is that Jesus has come down from the mountain and entered into this mess. Why? Because <laughs> this, is, this is how I would respond to this chaotic scene. And be like, peace out. I'm going back up to the mountaintop to my recliner. I got some take and bake waiting for me there. They don't deliver to the mountaintop. Y'all are on your own. But how does Christ Jesus, who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, an abounding and steadfast love and faithfulness, how does he respond? Well, Jesus, in the midst of his own sorrow over this situation, Jesus says to this boy's father, bring him to me. And there's the turning point in the story where we actually discover hope for the first time. Bring him to me." And uh, at this point, I think it'd be good to imagine being in the shoes of of this desperate father. They've been in these circumstances for so long where uh, nobody could help him or his son, and he has nothing in himself to remedy or fix anything. It's into this desperate and lonely situation that Jesus enters in and draws near. So let's keep reading in verse 20 to see how Jesus engages with this man. Verse 20, and they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth and jesus asked his father how long has this been happening to him and he said from childhood and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him but if you can do anything have compassion on us and help us Have you guys kind of noticed or sensed how, so far in this passage, the presence and the power of this demon is on the very forefront of this father's consciousness? Right? He talks about how this demon seems to just play with his, his poor child and exposing him to the extremes of nature, fire and water. It's almost as if, as if he thinks, maybe, maybe this one's too formidable for Jesus. Maybe he can't help, or maybe he can help a little. This is why he downgrades his plea by saying, but if you can do anything, something's better than nothing, right? But you know what's even more interesting than that? All of a sudden, the father uh, goes from uh, asking for help with his son to asking for help in the plural. Verse 22, have compassion on us. And help us. And, uh, you know, this is how I read it initially, and I'm sure most of us hear it this way. You know, the father probably meant, help us by helping my son. Help me by solving this immediate distressing problem in my life. Before my precious boy is killed by this cruel and evil spirit. And then we will be on our grateful and merry way. But Jesus responds to this request in a really unexpected way. Right? Because right as this boy is is having one of these demonic convulsion episodes, Jesus actually turns his attention away from the boy (laughs) to the father (laughs) to address this man's heart, his faith, Now, how is it that uh, this demon-possessed boy all of a sudden falls second in the queue? Well, that leads me to the next point, which is uh, in the eyes of Jesus, real faith. Real faith is the real priority. And why? Why is it the the priority? Because no matter... What else you have? If you don't have faith in the real world, you ultimately have no hope. So let's look at verse 23 to see how Jesus makes this man's faith the priority. Verse 23. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, when Jesus repeats back what the father just said, if you can, is he just being harsh or unreasonably uh, critical of the guy? After all, wouldn't it be fair for this man to have a, a little doubt at this point, you know, after Jesus' very own disciples failed miserably to, to cast the demon out to do anything? Like, how's, how's Jesus going to handle business if his uh, closest disciples can? Or, is there something different? Something else going on here with Jesus' response? Could it be that Jesus, with these very words, is indeed answering this man's pleas for help. Helping him to truly hear himself, right? To help him see and own his own unbelief and doubt. Perhaps to help him doubt his doubts. Now remember uh, a few verses ago in chapter 9, because this is all happening in that same area, that same scene, uh, Caesarea Philippi, right? Chapter 9, where God announced and commanded thunderously from the cloud in verse 7, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And for this dad, as he heard Jesus, the son speaking to him, Here's what it probably took to actually hear him, to truly listen to him. One, he needed to uh, take his heart's attention away and leave behind all the baggage, right, from the things that he's put his hopes in in the past that have failed him miserably. He also needs to stop being so afraid and thus uh, being intimidated and controlled by the powers of darkness that that oppress him and those around him? Because the reality is there's someone that is mightier than them all who is standing before him. He must listen to the Son. Listen to him like no other, as we heard last week, right? With all his heart mind and soul and Jesus Jesus gives this man this wonderful assurance to help him listen right he reminds the man and it sounds so hard to believe all things are possible for one who believes we're going to parse that out more later but for now notice that after hearing Jesus the lights go on for this man, and his response is nothing short of miraculous. Verse 24, right? Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. This, to me, is uh, one of the most beautiful prayers ever recorded in all of Scripture. Scripture. It's like a one-sentence summary of all the lament psalms. And it's meant to be cried out by God's people in the midst of all the sorrows in the valley. And it's uh, such a glorious reminder of how God meets us here, right here, right in the midst of the deep, dark, And it's such a beautiful picture of what God will count and accept as real faith, right? Because genuine faith is not something that never struggles with doubt, or never falters, never gets sidetracked, especially when trials and tribulations come. No, um, as Jesus says elsewhere, actually in the parallel account of this story in Matthew, faith. Real faith only needs to be like the smallest mustard seed. Even that has all the potential to flourish if we humble ourselves before the Lord, own our weakness, and simply, simply just ask for help. And that really is my next point. Real faith asks for real help. Because at the end of the day, you know what all uh, unbelief and faithlessness amounts to? It's simply this. I'm trying to do it on my own, by my own means, for my own sake and glory. This was the story of Israel. This is the story of every fallen human being. And Jesus spoke of it earlier as trying to save your own life. Which always ends in disaster right because it's a sure way to lose one's life but it doesn't have to be that way and we're given a powerful reminder of of this in the very next person who hears Jesus and then cries out remember remember I said it was a miracle the father's response so first it was the dad that cried out and now it will be his son As the spiritual forces of darkness have to listen to Jesus, right? They have no choice but to obey. This is why you listen to the Son. Verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. One of the, I'd say, most interesting things about this miracle is how the the cure seems to have been worse than the sickness. Before the eyes of the crowd, and especially the boy's father, uh, Jesus' intervention here seems to have produced the very outcome that they were trying to avoid, that they were dreading. Because now the boy, he's dead. Can you imagine the shock of this moment for the dad as he's trying to process what's going on? Jesus, I, 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 thought, I thought you were going to help I believed in you. can so quickly forget, right, that Jesus will be true to his word. All things are possible for one who believes. Because by all things, right, Jesus is about to show them that he was actually referring to impossible things. Seemingly impossible things because someone being raised from the dead, it doesn't get any more impossible than that. Jesus here is providing this living object lesson of his own death and rising. As well as what his gospel, what his cross will make possible for those who listen to him. There's so many things going on in this story. The first one is the, the, the Greek verb in verse 26, translated, he rose. It's the same verb that Mark uses uh, to describe Jesus' own rising from the dead. Uh, in Luke's account, you know, we're told that this was the man's only son. And do you see how this boy had to suffer terribly and seemingly died before he rose? working on a couple different levels here but this is the hope from this passage for everyone who answers Jesus' call to take up the cross and follow him. Because if you do answer that call it will certainly mean losing your life. But in that moment you deny yourself Jesus will say You will actually save your life he will take you by the hand lift you up and you will rise that's because when Jesus has a hold of you you will live even as you die now uh, don't get me wrong it's it's no sin to ask for physical healing or material change in this life. The Lord cares about all of that. And it's also sometimes how we exercise real humble faith as well. But I think we often forget that God is no puppet. He's no genie. He's no means to some other end. He is the end. (laughs) But I imagine some of you are living under the burden of what feels like God's silence or his no. If so, I would just ask, would you consider the possibility that he may be responding to your petitions, your prayers like Jesus did for this boy's father? which is in the way that you need most, in the way that he sees most fit. However painful this may be, the Lord may be doing a faith-forming, faith-shaping work in you that not only has this life in mind, but the eternal one to come. Because once again, real faith is the real priority. So here is the prayer that we're told the Lord will hear, even when we don't understand. Which again is, I believe, Lord help my unbelief. The Lord is pleased when we humble ourselves and, and own our weakness, like this boy's father did. And I really appreciate how Sinclair Ferguson uh, puts it as he talks about faith. He says, uh, Faith is man in his weakness, trusting God's promise in his word. Only through such weakness is the strength of God seen. And this leads us to the the close of our passage, to the place where God's strength is shown in weakness like nowhere else, in prayer. Look with me at verse 28, where Jesus uh, teaches his disciples this incredibly vital lesson about how to do things God's way, right? How we're supposed to be about the Lord's work. Look with me at verse 28. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And this word prayer, that's, that, that um, the Greek word here actually carries the sense of, of petition, right? of pleading, like uh, when we're helpless or or asking for mercy or pardon and here's the thing the disciples had seen a lot of success on the way and maybe just maybe that success had gotten into their heads a little bit and they had forgotten how God does things are we not also forgetful in this way God made everything good possible for them but they forgot to pray But remember, notice, what what prayer did God choose to use in this situation to deliver the boy? And remember, it was a prayer for faith, not so much a change of uh, circumstance. Whose petition made in weakness did Jesus receive and bless others through? So our final point is this. Real faith prays. (laughs) You know, not to try to manipulate God into producing some desirable outcome. Real faith actually petitions for more of God himself. Because God himself is the end of it all. Such prayers he responds to by taking us, healing us, and raising us to invincible, everlasting life. All things are possible. Uh, I just want to close with the words of the Apostle Paul as he describes how God does things in the cruciform way. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, and later on, he he goes on to boast, for when I am weak, then I am strong. This is such a, a, a key principle to hold on to, right, as we strive to know the Lord, and serve others in his name and to make him known this is the way of work discipleship in god's kingdom so uh you know as we all go out this week and seek the lord for our own sake and for others sake let's let this be the real prayer let's let this be our constant petition right lord we believe Help our unbelief. Amen.